All right, Isaiah 40. The story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is really a tragic tale, as we've been seeing in the equip class, as Jared has been faithfully teaching through the Old Testament. On the one hand, in the Old Testament, uh, it, really what, what happens is we're presented a revelation of God himself. And that is, we see the perfect picture of the character of God throughout the Old Testament. And that's his self-revelation. We know that his perfect self-revelation comes later in the person of Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament scriptures also give us a picture of God and his character. And so we learn in the Old Testament that God is loving and that he's gracious and merciful and forgiving and covenant-making and covenant-keeping. We see that in the Old Testament. On the other hand, we see a stark contrast in the Old Testament. We have the revelation of who God is, but in bold relief against that is the sinful nature of man. And so throughout the Old Testament, we see the fickle, doubting, unfaithful character of man with a continual propensity to forsake that loving, gracious, covenant-keeping God, and either indulge in their fleshly passions through idolatry, or perhaps to fall into a lifeless, hypocritical form of true religion. And so we see that pattern and that contrast from Genesis to Malachi, all throughout the Old Testament. And so the continual rebellion of God's people, this is what we've been seeing in Equip Class, uh, the continual rebellion of God's people, the Jews, really... Uh, comes to a climax in the Old Testament in something referred to as the Babylonian captivity, where God, in his sovereign working, stirs up the Babylonians to come and to uh, really decimate Jerusalem and raise the temple and to carry his rebellious people away into captivity. Isaiah chapter 40 was written to Judah while they were in the midst of that captivity. They are reaping the consequences of their continual rebellion against God. And God now pours a spirit upon Isaiah, and Isaiah gives them this prophecy. You can imagine God's people, God's chosen people, those who had spiritual privilege, those uh, who were granted the covenant promises, and so on. You can understand how, having been now drawn away, carried away into Babylon idolatrous, immoral, godless Babylon, you could understand how God's people at this time would have been feeling despair and doubt. Babylon has crushed them, destroyed Jerusalem, again, destroyed the temple, and they, uh, God's chosen people, yet this has happened to them. And so you can imagine their thinking at the time, immersed in a strange culture, estranged from their homeland, No end to the captivity in sight. And so some within Judah, in Babylon, begin to question God. He must not be loving. He must not care about us. He he must not even be aware of our plight. And so look in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. This is the attitude that Isaiah is addressing in Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my right is disregarded by my God. God doesn't care. God is not righteous. God is not about justice because he's abandoned us here in Babylon. Now, you read that and say, well, so Judah seems at this point to be maybe the innocent victim. But make no mistake, Judah is not innocent in any of this. In fact, the Babylonian captivity was the just consequence for their rebellion. 
They had been warned for decades. Turn from your idols. Turn from the immorality that inevitably accompanied your idolatry. They've been told for decades, return to God, worship him, worship him with a sincere heart. Yet they continually refused. Jeremiah, speaking to the same audience in Jeremiah 25, says this, For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Persistently over and over, prophets after prophets after prophets, uh, compelling God's people, return to the Lord. Yet they refuse. Idolatrous, immoral, unrepentant. That's the character of Judah. They'd watched the northern kingdom, as we said in the equip class, they had watched the northern kingdom of Israel already taken away captive into Assyria. And the hope was that perhaps having watched their sister nation being carried away into Assyrian captivity as a result of their sin, maybe Judah would look at that and say, we're not going there. We need to get our act together. But that's not at all what happened. In Jeremiah chapter 3, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore. And I thought, after she has done all this, she'll return to me. But she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of the faithless one Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. But she too went and played the whore. That imagery of marriage, as if Israel is married to uh, the Lord, yet constantly and continually committing adultery with other gods. That's the picture. She polluted the land. She took her whoredom lightly, committing adultery with stone and tree. Those are idols. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And so you have times where it seems like repentance. It seems like uh, they're responding to the prophets. It seems like there's reformation happening. But the Lord says, and all of it was just pretense. Their heart's not in it. They learn nothing after watching God's judgment through the Assyrians against the northern kingdom. So, so what then do you say about the apparent religious revivals? Again, the apparent religious revivals, uh, heartless, insincere. So in Isaiah chapter 40... Jerusalem is destroyed at this point. The temple is no more, and Judah is captive in Babylon. And God is sure to let us know that this captivity is orchestrated by him. It's a captivity orchestrated by the Lord in judgment against this idolatrous rebellion. It's as if the Lord is saying to Judah, since you have chosen to enslave yourself to your idols, since you have chosen sin over genuine worship, since you have chosen uh, to be an idolatrous nation, then I'm just going to give you to an idolatrous nation. I'm going to give you your wish. Here you are surrounded by idolatry and immorality. That's what you wanted, and now you have it. 
captive in Babylon. Now, when the prophets foretold of coming captivity, whether by the Assyrians or the Babylonians, they were always sure to state and restate the fact that although those nations were acting of their own volition, it was not apart from God's sovereign working. That is, God himself is the Lord of statecraft. He sets up kings and he tears down kings. And he sends the Assyrians to take his people captive. And he sends the Babylonians. And after that happens and the Assyrians and Babylonians are are puffed up in pride because of all they've accomplished, then he comes and judges the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Make no mistake, God is sovereign in all of this working. In this way, such judgments and trials, this captivity does not represent the absence of God's working. Or the idea that God has disregarded the estate of his people. In reality, this is God working. God's hand is in every aspect of this captivity because he is working out his own will and his own purpose in the lives of his people. Like the rest of the prophet's messages to Israel, however, Judah refuses to believe this. And so, again, verse 27 of Isaiah 40, My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded by my God. So Isaiah writes this chapter to answer those objections. So look what he says in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And right off the bat here, we need to make a clarification. The word comfort here in this text is not how we typically think of comfort. We think of comfort like, oh, there, there, everything's going to be okay. This really, if you think of the etymology of the word, is the way it's being used here is more in line with its original meaning. Comfort, come alongside and strengthen. Come alongside and strengthen, comfort. And so the idea is strengthen, strengthen my people, says your God. So they are in the midst of collapse here. They're in Babylon, and even that faithful remnant now is beginning to doubt, and he's saying, strengthen my people. Whereas prior to the Babylonian captivity, the Lord had used the language of divorce, I'm divorcing my people. Here in this text, now comes a time for him to give a word of encouragement or strengthening to his people, to remind them that he's not forsaken them completely. So look in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she, is not, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a tender message of hope to God's people who are in captivity. He's heralding the coming end to their turmoil. Now, notice when God says that the captivity is going to come to an end, he doesn't say that he's going to bring his people out of this captivity because they've learned their lesson. He doesn't say, oh, you've, you've gotten it, you've now repented, you've returned to me with your whole heart, therefore I'm going to relent and I'm going to bring you out of captivity. That's not what he's saying. What he says is, your iniquity is pardoned. It says, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. He's simply saying the punishment has met the crime. It's enough. D.A. Carson helps us with this passage, and he says that idea of receiving double for all her sins is is not a matter of you've committed one sin, so you get double punishment. He said the idea there is, is this concept of maybe taking a cloth and folding it in half. And you fold that thing in half, and what you've done is you've doubled it. Not only have you doubled it, but you've created a mirror image. The idea is the sins that you have committed, you have received the exact judgment that is commensurate to those sins. That's the idea. Justice has taken place. And so the Lord says, now I will deliver you. Now I will deliver you. So he's announcing the coming end of judgment. 
the eventual return of the exiles to Jerusalem. You say, well, if God's people here are not repentant, if they have not seen the error of their ways, if they're not returning with their whole heart, then why doesn't the Lord just keep them in captivity? Why doesn't he just pour out his unmitigated wrath and perhaps just wipe them out, right? I mean, you read the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, and you should be reading the Old Testament, by the way, but you're reading the Old Testament, and you man, they never learn. They never learn. God blesses them, and God provides for them, and they have all this divine privilege, and they keep falling back into sin, and then you remember that your own spiritual life seems to mimic that same pattern sometimes, right? Why doesn't the Lord just forsake them entirely? Psalm 89. Psalm 89. You don't need to turn there. But this is the Lord's covenant promise to David. He says, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, what will he do? If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. And you read through the book of Isaiah and you see repeated reference to David and his throne. These are the descendants of David. God has made a covenant with David. He will not fully forsake his people. And so even though they rebel and continually follow their sinful hearts, he says, I am faithful in my covenant keeping. So for the sake of his covenant and his own name, he delivers them. They may be an unfaithful covenant breaking people, but God remains a faithful covenant keeping God. That's the point. So, God does not forsake his people, but he disciplines them, seeking to bring them to repentance. He applies the pressure of judgment in order to purge them of their sin and rebellion. And so, this judgment of captivity upon Judah should have been enough, right? It should have been enough. That type of discipline should have been enough for them to see the error of their ways and to repent. His people should now return to him and worship him in sincerity. And so, what does the Lord do in verse 3? Look at it. He promises a deliverance. He promises a deliverance. You've suffered the, the penalty. Of course, the hope is now that you've suffered, uh, now you're going to return to me with your whole heart. But he says in verse 3, Isaiah says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's saying just as Babylon had rushed upon Judah and destroyed Jerusalem and razed the temple, so now the Lord is going to rush into Babylon, and he's going to deliver his people. The deliverer is coming, and it is God himself And so he says to all the people, make the way for God. Make a highway. Make a highway for your God. Clear the path because your deliverer is coming and that deliverer is God himself. Amazing. This is the grace of God bringing deliverance even to a sinful people. And so the cry is made, prepare the way. Strengthen the people. Straighten the path. In other words, get ready 
Deliverance is coming. Prepare yourself. Again, God himself is coming to you as if on a highway. And it says that he will come in all of his glory. Just picture it. I mean, you just think of that idea of a king riding on a horse, that majestic arrival of a king in all of his mighty power, and he's coming to deliver the captives. That's what's happening here. And he's going to come in all of his glory to deliver you from your captivity. Now, the initial fulfillment of this, the near fulfillment in Isaiah, is that the Lord would prepare Cyrus, king of Persia, to come and actually defeat the Babylonians. He would defeat the Babylonians and then eventually issue a decree which allowed God's people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. That's the initial fulfillment of that, which came to pass. Say, what a salvation, what a deliverance, what mercy. God's people rebelled, the Lord judges, now he delivers by his sovereign hand. And you say, wow, how could Judah resist That love of God. How could they resist and not return to God with their whole hearts now? Having learned their lesson through captivity and God's faithfulness. And, and you know, uh, the the Lord is such that he pours out blessing upon blessing upon blessing and makes it abundantly clear that is entirely unmerited. So that the only appropriate response is just a sense of absolute indebtedness where we can simply say, thank you for your mercy. And that's what he's doing with Judah. And when Judah returned from captivity after 70 years, it did appear for a time that his discipline had worked. They rebuilt the temple, the city, they reinstituted the sacrificial system and the feast. It looks like they had a genuine change of heart. But that's not at all what happened. As we learned earlier in the days of Josiah, Judah did not return to God with her whole heart, but in pretense. We know this because the Old Testament ends on a bleak note. Post-exile, after they're back in the land. And you get to the end of the Old Testament and you think, well, this is the climax. This is going to be a wonderful end to the story. And it's not. It's sad and depressing. And that's how the Old Testament ends. And so you come to the book of Malachi and what do we find? He addresses this later generation of Jews post-exile who have now rebuilt Jerusalem. And it seems that although Israel is now in their land... And although they've rebuilt the temple and reinstituted Orthodox worship, their hearts were still far from God. And so Malachi chapter 1, at the end of the Old Testament, see God's people questioning God's love again. They're going to question God's love in captivity. They're going to question God's love when they're in their own land. We see the priesthood becomes corrupt. They offer unacceptable sacrifices to God. Blemished sacrifices, just half-hearted worship. They're looking at the sacrificial system as a burden. Chapter 2 of Malachi, we see priests weeping over the altar, accusing God of injustice for not accepting their sacrifices. Then the Lord has to tell them, I'm not accepting your sacrifices because you're out there committing adultery. And you're marrying and divorcing and remarrying and divorcing and remarrying and divorcing. And then you come and offer things to me and wonder why I'm not accepting it from you. And then they further accuse God of being unjust. This is actually from Malachi. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, they say. And then they ask, where is, where is the God of justice? Accusing him of injustice. God then warns them that all justice will be executed. I am a just God, and justice is coming. But then he warns them, I'm going to come in judgment against you, your practice of sorcery and adultery and lying and oppression. That's how the Old Testament ends. 
Those are those who have returned now from exile. Suffice it to say, the Jewish people, though free from Babylon for many years, proved that the actual source of their captivity was not found in the power of foreign nations. The actual source of their captivity was within their own hearts. They were perpetually drawn away to sin and lust and idolatry and rebellion. Tender instruction, covenant promises, harsh rebuke, prophetic warning, even physical captivity. None of this could could cure them or divest them of their actual problem, which was their sinful hearts. So the Old Testament ends with Israel having proven the point through failure that if they were to be genuine worshipers of God, they would need to be delivered from the captivity of their own sinfulness and inability. This, of course, seems like a hopeless endeavor. The Lord, however, ends the Old Testament with two verses that give a glimmer of hope. Malachi 4.5 Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." A prophet is coming, Elijah's coming, and he's actually going to do heart work. What a promise. The Old Testament ends. Things look bleak, but there's a promise. In the ensuing years between Malachi and the opening of the New Testament, Israel's character really remains largely unchanged. They experience some victories, they experience peaks of spiritual revival, but they would ultimately descend again, maybe into out-and-out sin, but perhaps patterns of lifeless, hypocritical, pretentious religion. When the New Testament opens, this is the state in which we find Israel. Yes, there's a faithful remnant of genuine worshipers of God, as there always had been, but institutionally, the religion was corrupt. Although they had prided themselves on being God's holy people, their hypocrisy and prejudice and injustice and legalism and loveless religion betrayed the fact that they were still idolaters at heart. They remained captive to their own sinfulness and remained in need of a deliverer. Then... Suddenly, after hundreds of years of silence between the Testaments, the promised prophet arrives. His name was John the Baptist. This John was the fulfillment of the promise which the Lord had ended the Old Testament scriptures with. In announcing the arrival of John the Baptist to John's father, Zechariah, the angel Gabriel quoted those very last verses of the Old Testament in Malachi. Luke 1.16 says, And he will turn away, or, or sorry, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the people, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so the uh, angel sees very clearly, announces very clearly that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that final promise. Then when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, holds that new baby in his hands and is overcome by the Holy Spirit, he prophesies this way in Luke chapter 1, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. It is this John the Baptist, promised, the promised prophet of the Most High. It's this John who would go before the Lord to prepare his ways. He will go to give knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of sins. And it's that John that we meet in our passage this morning in John chapter 1. And so look in John chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to go back to Isaiah 40, so leave a bookmark there. John chapter 1, verse 14. Remember from last week, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, he tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's hand. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so John the Apostle presents John the Baptist as the very first witness to the identity of Jesus Christ. You can imagine the speculation. Here comes a prophet on the scene after many years of silence. There's been false prophets, but many years of silence on the prophetic uh, scene. John the Baptist comes forward, and he's baptizing disciples. He's preaching to crowds. He's demanding repentance. And so many think he's the Messiah. John's quick to reject that notion, though. I'm not the Messiah. He clearly confesses that. Instead, he says, I am the one who's come to reveal the Messiah to Israel. Now, look in verse 21 of John 1. In John chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, we see just how John the Baptist does identify himself. We know who he's not, right? Actually, we're going to see who he's not here. And they asked, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And so, I'm not Elijah. Though Malachi ended and said Elijah's going to come, uh, what, did, what, did, uh, what was the prophecy? Well, he's going to come in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet, that prophet that Moses had predicted? There's going to be a prophet that's going to arise like me. They were anticipating that prophet. He said, no, I'm not that prophet. Well, who are you then? Now look in verse 23. He said... I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Oh, wait a second. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. We just saw that's already been fulfilled. I mean, that was written, remember, to Judah while they were in captivity in Babylon. This was the promise of deliverance for God's captive people, and that was fulfilled as God stirred up Cyrus to come and to take out Babylon and to issue the decree to send Judah back to Jerusalem so they could rebuild the walls and the temple. And so that's already been fulfilled. What's happening here? John the Baptist, in identifying himself, takes upon himself the identity of that voice crying in the wilderness. Very interesting. 
The voice in Isaiah was a voice declaring the arrival of divine deliverance from captivity. That voice was announcing that God himself was coming to deliver his people from what appeared to be helpless captivity or hopeless captivity. There was a near fulfillment, obviously. But what we find here on the lips of John is reality that that prophecy had both a near and a far fulfillment. This is the way that prophecy often works. There's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. One fulfillment that made all sorts of sense to the immediate audience, but also a far fulfillment that perhaps they couldn't quite see. This is that final and full fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 40. Although the Lord fulfilled the promise of deliverance from Babylonian captivity, there was a sense in which that promise was not yet fully satisfied until the coming of John the Baptist and Christ. In some way, according to John, he is the final fulfillment of that voice crying out in the wilderness. He is the voice preparing the way of the Lord. He is the voice calling men and women to prepare the way for their God. Now understand, it says here in John chapter 1 that those who came to John the Baptist inquiring were of the Pharisees. They were the priests and the scribes. These are the religious elites that would have been very familiar with the Scriptures and very familiar with Isaiah. John the Baptist is using this terminology wisely and purposefully. He wants his audience to draw a number of implications from what he's saying. First of all, if John is the voice crying in the wilderness, then those to whom he preaches must be what? In captivity. They must be in in captivity and must be in need of a deliverer. If John is the voice crying in the wilderness, then he is preparing the way for whom? For God himself to come, to arrive on the scene, and to actually be that deliverer. If John is the voice crying in the wilderness, then it is incumbent upon all who hear him in some way to prepare themselves for God's arrival to bring that promised deliverance. If John is the voice crying in the wilderness, then God's glory will be put on display when he comes to deliver. His expectation is that those who hear him, so familiar with the book of Isaiah, would understand those implications. And you wonder why John was a controversial figure. Let's think about those implications a little bit here. We said that if John is the voice crying in the wilderness, in final fulfillment of Isaiah 43, 40 verse 3, then those to whom he preaches must be captive and in need of a deliverer. Was John's audience in captivity? In a sense, in that they were under Roman rule, and they chafed against that Roman rule. In fact, they have had a string of captivities. They were captive in Babylon, and then captive to the Persians, and then captive to the Greeks, and now here they are under the Romans. But it's not those captivities that, that John is alluding to here. John is exposing the fact that all men within earshot of his preaching were still captive to sin. And that's the lesson we learned from the Old Testament. Even when freed from physical captivity, Israel proved over and over again they were slaves to their own sin. We know this because of the way in which John encouraged the people to prepare the way for this coming deliverer. Look and put it on the screen, Matthew 3 verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Moses' message, Repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, where he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And so how are men to prepare the way for this coming deliverer? How are they to make a highway for their God to come and to free them from captivity? John says, repent. It's a hard issue. Repent. Orient your heart towards God. Repent of your sin. Anticipate his coming. Acknowledge that you need deliverance from your sin. Repent. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make the path straight by getting your heart right. The pathway which needs to be made straight is the pathway into the heart. The people remain captive to their own sinfulness, just as, uh, just as they were in Josiah's day and in the day of their captivity, in Malachi's day, still captive to sin. Jesus would later have this exchange with the Jews in John 8.31. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Which, I, I, what is this person thinking? Never been enslaved to anyone. I mean, let's just name all the people they've been enslaved to, right? We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This is the human condition. This is the human condition. All those who have not yet come to the Lord for deliverance, have come to the Lord for salvation, remain captive Slave to sin. So, this is why John's message was controversial. He declares that all men, including and maybe even especially the religious elites, were slaves. Slaves to sin, in need of deliverance. He was there to announce that this deliverer was coming and that to prepare his coming, it doesn't matter if you're man or woman, religious elite uh, or uneducated, no matter who you are, everyone must make the way for the Lord through repentance. Prepare your heart for the coming deliverance. And that actually covers the second implication that we mentioned. We said that if John is the voice crying in the wilderness, then it's incumbent upon his hearers to in some way prepare themselves for God's arrival in his promised deliverance. And we just said that happens through repentance. What was another implication we saw if John is the voice crying in the wilderness? If John is the voice crying in the wilderness then he is preparing the way for whom? For God himself. He's preparing the way for God himself to arrive on the scene as that deliverer. Back to Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Clearly, the deliverer is God. This is Yahweh who is the deliverer. God himself is coming to free his people from captivity. This is made even more clear. And so if you're in Isaiah still, Isaiah chapter 40, look in verse 9. It continues, Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them, and his recompense before him. The voice cries out, Behold your God, coming with a mighty hand to judge, coming with a mighty hand to reward. The day of reckoning has arrived, so get your hearts right. 
He's coming with might. But now look in verse 11 and see how else Isaiah highlights the character of this divine deliverer. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? This is the mighty God. This is the mighty God who's coming to deliver from the captivity of sin. And he's first a tender shepherd who will gather his lambs in his arms. Next, he's the all-powerful creator who has measured out the waters and weighed out the mountains. The point is that he is so mighty that he can accomplish any deliverance and so tender that he will do so with loving compassion. That is the divine deliverer who John the Baptist is announcing. He is the mighty God while also the Prince of Peace. He's powerful enough to make the world yet compassionate enough to tenderly gather together his people like lambs. He will violently stamp out sin and death and Satan while safely cradling his people in his comforting arms. Now go back to John. John chapter 1, verse 23 again. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And then verse 29. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. The voice in Isaiah says, Behold your God. The voice in John says, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. John the Baptist is a voice crying out in the wilderness, paving the way for the coming divine deliverer. And he says, I've come to reveal him to Israel. Just as the voice in Isaiah said, God is coming, God himself is coming to deliver, so John the Baptist says, God himself is coming to deliver. Just as the voice in Isaiah was there to reveal God to Israel, so too John the Baptist is here revealing God to Israel. And who do we find God is? Is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is the mighty creator. Jesus is the tender shepherd. And the promised deliverer. When Jesus arrived on the scene, God himself arrived on the scene to deliver from captivity. He came on the scene to deliver his people from the captivity of sin. This he would accomplish. According to John the Baptist, he said he's the Lamb of God. He's going to accomplish this by offering himself as a sacrificial lamb in order to take away the sins of the world. And by the way, even that... Even that was not lost on Isaiah, because if you follow from Isaiah 40 and you continue on, eventually you're going to come to Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. Then you see even then that this divine figure is presented as one achieving salvation through the offering of himself. And so John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
purposefully, obviously, quoting Isaiah chapter 40 to make it very clear that he is the final and full fulfillment of that voice. And being the final and full fulfillment has tremendous implications. Tremendous implications as to the identity of Jesus. So John the Baptist understood the nature of his ministry. He was not Elijah, though he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was not the prophet promised by Moses. That would be fulfilled in Jesus. And he was not the Messiah. So the Pharisees questioned, why are you baptizing? He says in verse 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. In John's eyes, he's simply an unworthy servant. He was simply a witness and a forerunner. He was a herald sent to God's perpetually rebellious people to cry out that God himself had come to save them from their sins. And again, in that way, he's a final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the voice crying in the wilderness. He's the final voice declaring the arrival of the final deliverance, a deliverance from the final, the ultimate enemy of man, which is his own sinfulness. And so with John's message came not only the announcement of a deliverer, but implied with that announcement was a declaration that all men everywhere are sinners. All men everywhere are sinners in need of that deliverance. He came to shatter the notion that any were free from the need of salvation. One last passage here in Matthew chapter 3. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to John the Baptist. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's saying, this is the latter days, and judgment has come. This is a day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and get your heart right, because the one who's coming can save, but he's also coming as judge. Everyone must now choose what they will do in the face of this coming deliverer. Jesus, God in the flesh, has arrived. He is the mighty God, and his reward is with them, and his recompense before him, as Isaiah said. So get your hearts ready to receive him. So now you and I are extremely privileged this morning. We have incredible revelation. From our vantage point, we can look across the whole span of redemptive history. We can look back to Adam and Eve's failure in the garden. We can see how the ravages of sin spread across all of creation. We can see mankind's propensity to become enslaved to sin. We can see how even those privileged with covenant promises and divine revelation also succumb to that captivity. We can look across the span of history and see that the natural human condition requires a deliverer. We can also look back and see how the Lord himself provided that deliverer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, then thank the Lord that by his nature, he is merciful and gracious abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and that he himself has provided deliverance from your captivity to sin. 
He sent his son, tender shepherd, mighty God, to scoop you up into his arms while defeating the enemies of your soul. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, the testimony of Scripture regarding your current state is that you are enslaved to your own sin. You're enslaved to your own sin and you're wholly unable to rectify your situation. You are captive to the power of sin and also culpable to pay the penalty of your sin. Your sin has violated the holy God. Has offended the holy God. But take comfort. Because God himself has provided the means of deliverance from the captivity of your sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, gave himself as a substitute in your place. Died to pay the penalty due your sin and has satisfied God's wrath against you. Free and full salvation is available to anyone this morning. What must you do? Well, John the Baptist says, repent. Prepare your heart. Trust the one whom God has provided as your deliverer. Pray to God. Ask his forgiveness for your sin and express the fact that you are trusting Jesus and Jesus alone as your Savior and Lord. The promise then is full salvation. Deliverance from that captivity. And what does he do? I mean, practically speaking, what does he do? He gives you his Holy Spirit. He makes you spiritually new on the inside. He declares you pardoned. And then he gives you the power and ability now to live and to walk in a way which pleases him. Freedom from captivity. You still stumble and fall along the way, but ultimately you're no longer a slave to sin. When you express such faith in Jesus, you prove that you then are one of his sheep. And in John chapter 10, and we're going to close with this, in verse 27, Jesus, remember that tender shepherd says... My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And there you see how important it is that Jesus Christ is both mighty God and tender shepherd. Because as the tender shepherd, he has compassion and brings you up into his arms, but as as the mighty God, there's no chance that anybody can never remove you from his tender, compassionate care. So this morning, would you receive Jesus as your Savior and Lord? You are captive to sin, and you need that freedom from sin, and he's the only means. He is the promised deliverer, the full and final deliverer. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your covenant faithfulness. Thank you that you did not... Wipe out your people completely, but even in the face of their utter rebellion and their sinful hearts, continually choosing sin, Lord, you show compassion. You left a remnant. And Lord, we thank you that in your faithfulness, you sent a full and final deliverer. You provided the means to put an end to this continual cycle of Sin and half-hearted repentance and falling back into sin again. And Lord, you have made a way to produce a people who would actually worship you in sincerity and truth for all of eternity. And you did it through Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promised deliverer. Thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is both mighty God and tender shepherd. We thank you that the deliverance he provides for us is full and final. can never be undone. And then, Lord, we're quick to acknowledge, Lord, we recognize that as the full and final deliverer, there remains no no other sacrifice for sin, but it's incumbent upon us to receive Jesus. So we pray this morning for any who are not yet Christians, 
We pray that they would see their need for Jesus. We pray that they would not leave this place thinking they can find salvation in any other source or deliverance in any other location, but Jesus is that full and final revelation of deliverance. And so, Lord, we pray that these would express to you in prayer their faith in Jesus. pray that they would ask you for forgiveness for their sin, placing their trust in him and him alone. Lord, we thank you for this. Thank you that you're still saving souls. And then, Lord, for those who are Christians this morning, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for deliverance that we have in his name. We just thank you as we see the scope of your revelation from Genesis all the way to the end. We see your faithfulness on display and your tender compassion towards us who are unworthy. We thank you that while we were yet sinners, you loved us by sending Jesus to die for us. Help us now to live for him, not in order to earn salvation or to earn acceptance by you, but because we have an absolute sense of indebtedness, because you have blessed us in a way that we could never merit. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.